Welcome to our second episode of Holding Space for Boys and Men of Color, Black Macho and the Myth of the Black Superwoman. In today's episode, we take a deep dive into gender dynamics in the Black community. We explore the challenges and opportunities that exist when Black women and men dare to love one another in context devoid of love. Our guests today include Professor Tommy Curry, Chair of Africana and Black Male Studies at the University of Edinburgh, also Mr. Elmani Viney, Dean of Students at Piscataway High School, and Dr. Janice Johnson-Diaz, President of Grassroots Community Foundation and author of Parent Like It Matters, How to Raise Joyful, Change-Making Girls. They tried to silence me, seeking attention, restricting my members of freedom of speech. But I have the right to fight and talk about what I have seen. Who really had killing the most police on COVID-19? BLM, MLK, I have a dream that black and whites will soon unite without making a scene. And every cop in that fire shot before they tell us to freeze. All right, everybody. So I'm so excited to be here with this group of just dope scholar activists talking tonight about black macho and the myth of the superwoman. Tonight, we're going to get into it and we're going to talk about you know, black female male relationships, what's happening in the village in the past, what's happening now. And I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Tommy J. Curry, Dr. Janice Johnson-Diaz, and Mr. Elmani Viney. And of course, I'm here with my co-host, Ken Cheadle. Um, We're excited to delve into this conversation tonight. So let's get into it, people. You know, we've been talking a lot about um, relationships in the Black um, community, especially in light of the election and all of the issues that we've been facing this year. And tonight, we're going to be talking about um, one of the things that I think is long overdue. And that's, you know, how do we as a village sort of reconcile these conflicts that emerge sometimes between Black men and women um, which I think are outgrowth of a long-standing need for us to have some real conversations. And the title of tonight's conversation is based off of Michelle Wallace's book, Black Macho and the Myth of the Black Superwoman, and a book that has been considered indeed controversial. And in fact, um, some have described it as being a little bit off-centered in terms of its um, political analyses, but others have said, like Jamila Lemieux, that um it contains the kind of necessary roughness um, that's necessary to shed light on the public and private violences between Black men and women. So this convo is about those public and private violences, but it's also about the public and private peace, the parts about us that love and support each other and what's standing in the way of that love. So y'all know me, y'all know I'm always looking for the silver light. I'm a positive psychologist, so I'm going to always bring in the the strengths and assets. But let's go back back to the roots. And I want us to talk a little bit about how we got here. Talking a little bit about the history that undergirds um, Black female and male relationships in our country. And I'm just going to ask Dr. Curry to jump start us off with a little bit of a historical analysis here. Brother Curry, how, how did we get here? that we're struggling, I think, to find this balance in the community uh, between Black men and Black women? This is this is a long-rooted problem. Uh, you know, I think the easy answer, of course, is we start with slavery. But there are, there is literally a century of bad science, economic policies, and segregation that get us to this point. Uh, well, in the early 1900s, you had white thinkers trying to separate Black men from the family. The idea that the black male could not be a father, 
the idea that there could not be nuclear families in the black community, that black men had no loyalty to their wives or children was almost scientific fact well through the 1920s and 30s. So when you had people like John Dollard talk about a caste psychology, what he was drawing attention to was the inability of black men and women to love each other and basically use violence to control each other. So he introduced the idea that racial oppression led to frustration within the black race. <clears throat> he had suggested that the way that black men and black women control each other is with the threat of death and violence. Uh, that work was the groundwork uh, for the Monaghan Report in 65. Mm -hmm. John Dollard was actually Monaghan's mentor and intellectual inspiration. He wrote the foreword to cast uh, in class in a Southern town years after Dollar's death. So you see a continuation of how white people are studying black communities. They see black men who are being disempowered. They see black women who may have some social mobility and they read every interaction through violence, violence against spouses, violence against children. And this is important because in the 1960s, white criminologists picked up on the idea that black families and black people were naturally violent. And they suggested that we can use this lens of a subculture to study poor black people. So we internalized this myth because this was coming out of the 60s and 70s and got caught up with feminism. And the idea was that a poor black man in an urban community was not only a criminal, not only wanted to commit murder, but was also a rapist. So these criminologists gave to America and gave to think tanks in America. So people like Lynn A. Curtis, gave policy to America that told white liberals that the reason you see the kinds of domestic abuse, child abuse, sexual assault, early sexual debut amongst black people in the United States was ultimately because they had a subcultural uh, perspective that only understood violence and mayhem. And what mm -hmm. he did to black men in that theory was to introduce black men as a problem, not only for policy, but also for thought. And when white feminists like Susan Brown Miller or Karen Holmes and Joyce Williams picked this work up, they made it an issue of gender. So the idea was that black masculinity was always a threat to black women and girls, to other black men in the neighborhood and to society at large. And we have not moved beyond that frame. Despite the years of work we've done in black studies, we've rejected it for the race in general. So now we explain violence through socioeconomic deprivation and disparity. When it comes to black men, we explain violence through masculinity. So we've saved the race, so to speak, insofar as how we explain it. When it comes to these poor urban black males, this is where you get the notion of toxic masculinity. Mm -hmm. So every division, every problem that every other group of people, every other race experiences, if they're poor, you'll have higher rates of domestic violence. If you have recidivism, alcoholism, drug abuse, higher rates of physical and child sexual abuse, we know this runs across races, but when it comes to black people, we don't explain through ecological factors and variables. We blame black men for being poisonous, depraved, and ultimately violent and rape crazy. Wow, I mean, that's deep because, you know, as soon as you lifted up Moynihan, I knew we were about to get into some juicy stuff because, you know, I've always said that we not need to bury the Moynihan report, douse it with gasoline, put it under five other layers of soil and dust and murk and like just be done with it. Because what it also did, in my opinion, is it pathologized black mothers. 
And I thought that at the same time, while they were trying to take down the image of black fathers, that they also crucified black women, black women who have been raising black sons and daughters for generations and centuries. Dr. Diaz, what do you have to say about this, this matter? The Moynihan Report is always, I think, uh, a really useful guide. So, you know, we know that Daniel Patrick Moynihan wrote this report. It was never supposed to be public, right? And it was released um, and became many, many things subsequently. But I agree with Dr. Powell is that what happens with the Moynihan Report is this crucifixion of Black women. Um, but I think at the heart of it, it wasn't, no one would deny that the context of the Moynihan Report was true, that the evidence of Black families were true. It's the explanation that becomes the issue. The explanation is pathologizing. And the explanation, I think, uh, you know, I, I differ a little bit with you, Dr. Curry, on the explanation. Um, I think a part of what is um, this intersection, this place where historical problems meet social realities is a difficult place. So, for, so what I mean by that is this, is that the Black family in the United States and those of us who are coming out of a history of enslavement have had a particular kind of imagery about what family should look like. Mm -hmm. And what family should look like in the United States, the Caribbean, um, and those of us who are coming out of a specific enslavement experience is one that is extremely sexist. It's one that prioritizes and centers men and um, men whose labor is outside of the home and suggests that when men work outside of the home and gather goods and services for their families, they're in fact being men. And when women stay inside of the home and do care work and care for the elderly, then they're being women. And that framework um, is an insidious framework especially given the context of having stolen, raped, killed, separated, developed advanced policies to ensure that people of African descent don't have that construction. But if you ideologically are supposed to kind of strive for that, right, then it's difficult to always see that there is a set of structural factors making that ideological goal impossible. But it doesn't mean that you still don't strive for it ideologically, right? Like you still, you want that family. That's what people say. That's what the society louds as the family. There's a man and a wife and two children and she cares and he gets to work and earns. But in the case of people of African descent, all the structural resources almost makes that impossible. So I think Daniel Patrick Moynihan, when he wrote that report, he was identified, but what he didn't take into consideration, which I think is where you and I, Dr. Curry, would agree, is that there were a massive set of structural resources that made it impossible for Black men to thrive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a vast majority of Black men who know that those structural resources make it impossible for them to thrive, and they still are beholden to the ideological goal. And I think there are many Black women who know that it's strikingly impossible given the structural resources that still are beholden to those ideological goals. It's like, look, white men and white women get to set the standard of what shit's supposed to be. 
And if you buy that, if you buy into that, you screwed as black people. You have to reject that. Because if you don't reject it, you ain't got no good place to be. You ain't got no good place to be. You gonna end up with strife between black women and black men because the structural parameters are ridiculous. And any, any attempt to mimic whatever whites are doing with themselves is gonna be a failure for us. Mm, facts. Mr. Viney, Mr. Viney, you're like you're pondering something deep over there. I see you rubbing your chin. And <laughs> Before you speak, I have a quick question for everybody. Sure. Like, so, but Mr. Viney, you can speak to it just for the other listeners. What is the Morningham Report? Like, what did it entail or like a little bit of background? So, because I'm interested, but I don't really know anything about it. So I'm happy to say what it is. So Daniel Patrick Moynihan, Senator from New York, um, he was put in charge of um, developing a report on the case of the Black problem. Black problem as identified as high unemployment rate, high incarceration rate, high um, dysfunction. And he was to assess and evaluate and produce a report for the government such that the government could develop a remediation plan. And that was supposed to be an internal report, which happens many, many, that's happening right now, right? Um, and those reports, whenever we see social ills, we see people get sick, we see people are highly unemployed. In the United States, we've decided that about 10% of the population can always be unemployed, and that's all right. They can suffer. But once a number gets above 10, we get kind of concerned. So we look at what's happening broadly, and then we look within groups. In the 1960s, what was happening is that we were seeing high levels of Black unemployment, high levels of drug use and abuse. And so he was, he was commissioned to write this report. He wrote this report. The report fundamentally say the Black family is dysfunctional. It's largely dysfunctional because there's not enough Black men in the household. Black mothers cannot control their sons. Their sons become wayward. And the Black community is essentially and fundamentally screwed because Black men are these pathologizing, pathetic characters, and Black women lack control of their households. Wow. Didn't they set up these structures that created? Anyway, so, yeah. <laughs> so Facts. That report was supposed to be just handed over like a report, but it was leaked. And it's leaking, right? So either way, the report was intended to develop a bunch of policies to get Blacks right because they, they wrong, they out there not doing what white families are doing, being good and too family and all the rest of those things. So that report was intended to, to be kind of a blueprint to develop essentially like we have a war on drugs, a war on fixing black families. And um, it became a public thing. And so there were a set of scholars who really were uh, influenced because the evidence itself was in fact true, right? Like it was true, black men were being incarcerated. It was true that black households were primarily becoming single mothers, mother only households. Those facts were true. The explanations, however, <laughs> for that refused to contend with the fact that there had been hundreds of years of policies that fragmented the black family and put black 
uh, men in a in a terrible position. And also we had ongoing at that time immediate policies, one of which was the federal government that says, if you wanted welfare assistance from the government, you could not have a man in the house. And so black men literally had to like escape their households if a social worker came. And these were good whites, right? This The, the whole social work community was like, we are good whites. We want to save black children. And so we just go visit them and make sure they're all right. But if there's a man in that house, then we really have to have that man leave because we can't have no man. And so there was a, that was an actual operationalized policies developed by philanthropic white women. And so this report gave no consideration to the structural policies, the economic conditions, the um, history of racism, et cetera. And in the end, decided that black men weren't shit and black mothers didn't have control of their households. And it became the blueprint for what we see today. So, you know, you're, you're confronting on the ground every day in your day-to-day work, um, black families with some of these very issues that, you know, uh, Moynihan <laughs> uh, tried to to expose, uh, convey, et cetera. T- talk to us from that position as you are observing sort of some of the d- d- dynamics and families that we're describing and their implications for the children. Because my question is always like, you know, us adults, we can have a lot of conversations about the historical context of black female and male relationships, about the black families, but it's our children who ultimately have to answer uh, to to this, right? They'll they'll be the ones that will have to um, that will be impacted the most by the decisions we make about the relationships we we form. You know, my mother always used to say, like, you didn't ask to be here, um, so it's my responsibility to be the the steward. So how do we create context uh, on the ground for where children can thrive in in families where black men and women have functional relationships? Well, it, so so let let's talk about that desired end result, right? How do we produce families that produce functional uh, black children, and it's in this case black boys? In order to get to that result, I think we have to move back, and it's very interesting with the conversation about the Moynihan report, and I want to talk about this briefly in terms of in the macro, because. Um, as you stated, that report was an internal document. So if we take that into context, the fundamental question becomes how many other internal documents that framed black men and black families as dysfunctional that created um, these dysfunctional constructs in which we viewed black men through the lens was then utilized for policy. We see that in the nonprofit sector, right? Mm-hmm. In terms of how um, RFPs for grants are created. We see that definitely in terms of black men and boys. In particular, even under Obama, uh, the, the mere fact that mentoring programs were put under the Office of Juvenile Justice and how many references mm-hmm. to at risk in there. And then, so you, you look at that and even in the educational sector in terms of policies and the lens in which we see um, Black children, um, disparities, of course, in terms of school discipline, um, the idea of how we define, or should I say, don't define Black male Mm -hmm. achievement uh, within these school districts. So I'm just talking about policy Mm -hmm. here. And what Mm -hmm. that does is it's all designed in the context, in the construct 
of looking at the black child, especially the black male, the young black male, the young black boy as dysfunctional. I've been a black male educator for 21 years. And I can't tell you, it sounds like a compliment, but anybody who's a black male educator will tell you that off the bat, we're called great role models. White male teachers are not called role models. White female teachers are not called role models. Black male teachers are called role models. Why? Because there is an assumption. There's a construct, an image that black boys in education are going to be dysfunctional, right? It becomes that invisible uh, man situation. And how does that play out though, when, you know, this lens in that setting though, how does it show up? I mean, I have ideas and I'm sure many listeners have ideas of how that framing that pathologizing frame, because that's what we're talking about, right? With Moynihan, it's about this frame that set into motion a set of policies and systems and structures. And I am sure that where you sit, where you sit every day, that you're seeing those policies play out in really profound ways. So this is how it plays out. Let's talk academics first. It plays out in, th in this way. When young black males speak, even at a very early age, I'm talking about going to second grade, begin to speak about um, their future ambitions, their dreams. Mm -hmm they are given negative responses from their teachers. They are told to limit the way that they view themselves, limit their aspirations. That's number one. Two, go into that, 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 that image and construct, right? Of hypersexual, hyperviolent black male. That creates a hypersensitivity because let's speak about it. White women dominate the educational sector. And they bring those biases about black men into the classrooms. And so when we talk about the disparity in school discipline, when a young black male gets angry or not even angry, just expresses themselves, even at a young age, it is seen as being hyper aggressive. It is seen as being threatening. Listen, I'm going to give you an example. My own son. Now, my son now is 15. When my son was literally in the second grade, the second grade, um, I went to go pick him up and they said, oh, we had to, you know, give him a timeout. Okay, no problem. So, and then I read the report. Now, this is what was interesting. He got mad about a game and he slammed down the computer laptop or the, the keyboard. Okay. But the teacher wrote violently, slammed down. Mm -hmm. The keyboard. <laughs> when, when you think about that word, you're, you're already assigning violence to a second grader. And I, I, I got on their case. I said, listen, I don't mind the timeout. Strike that word. But mm -hmm. how many parents are not educated on doing that? And then what happens is, is that this becomes the practice that begins from grammar school all the way through high school, which is why all of a sudden, by the time they get to me, many young men, many young black males already have, there are two things that happen. They already have, quote unquote, a behavioral record that follows them in there. And this is what a lot of people don't know, is that mm -hmm. your school discipline record follows you all the way through into the high school. That's right. 
And so therefore, I'm dean of students. So I can read every transgression that a child has done since they've been in the district. If you're a teacher, that then forms your opinion about that child. So that, that that's one aspect. But then here comes the child. The child, now the young black male is coming in battle-hardened. Mm-hmm. They're coming in, have been disciplined, told their future is nothing. They've been hit with all of that. And then heaven forbid, if there truly is dysfunctionality in the household, they're dealing with that. And so what happens is, is that I spend a lot of time peeling back those layers, cutting away those scabs and, and, and trying to deal with that. But the system is set up as such that even in my position as school disciplinarian, and you think that I would have a lot more power, if I don't catch them before they begin their first transgression, it can begin them into an endless loop and system of school discipline that even I myself, in the position of school disciplinarian, can't control. And, you know, it's interesting that that you would lift those dynamics up because, you know, I I read this really powerful report from Georgetown um, Law and Poverty. I'm going to get this wrong. I think Law and Poverty Center around the adultification biases that our children face. And it strikes me that part of what what I think hits both black girls and, and black boys at that age are these this perception that they are hardened, that they're superhuman, um, capable of withstanding all kinds of, you know, deaths by a thousand cuts and, and leaping over stuff, you know, in a single bound. Like they're like Chadwick Boseman, God rest his soul. Like our children are not superheroes. And I, what I wonder about this perception, and I want to take this back to like sort of male-female relationships and dynamics, is that that perception that, that gets rooted and early on in the, in the minds of both black girls and boys at that age, I think has a pronounced effect on the kinds of relationships they are able to form and on their perceptions of the other person in that relationship. And I want to ask this question. I want to go first. I'm going to come back to you, um, Elmani. I want to ask um, Tommy uh, Curry to talk a little bit about this. Like, I, I see something profound happening at that early stage of development that I think further um, feeds the divisiveness that I think we see when people get to a, a, a certain stage in their development. I, and I'm not saying that this happens for everyone, but I think that there's some seeds that are planted there that colors how you form relationships. If you're hardening yourself, as Elmani said, you're coming in with that armor already, how do you loosen that armor to even form a relationship? Not just with another, with a woman, but any partner, um, same sex or otherwise. I wonder if you could weigh in on that. There's tremendous evidence that this changes the effectivity that young black boys have. And it's not only in school disciplines, but we see this even with, you know, first exposure to violence, early sexual debut, Right. All these all these things collectively impact how young black men and boys look at themselves and and view the world. Right. right? Because part of part of the adjustment that I don't think that we make when we study young black boys is how are they perceiving the threats in the world? How do they think they have to be to survive? And when we look at black male deviants or we pathologize young black men, we do so from the perspective that they're not actually reflective and integrating messages from the society, from their schools, from their neighborhoods, et cetera. 
And this is, mm -hmm. this is a major gap in how we try to understand black men and boys. When we look at them as problems and deviants, then we try to adjust that through discipline, right? Mm -hmm. We think that it's something, it's a, it's a innate character flaw that has to be controlled. So, and, and this is so important. When we talk about the ways that black boys are treated within university structures, within school structures, within society, we have to understand that that's, that's from a long train of antecedent thought and pathology, right? We didn't wake up one day and just say black boys are battle hardened or black boys don't have emotions or black boys are, are dangerous. Like in my book, I always talk about uh, how the society tries to target the black boy uh, the, the cub before he turns into the black male beast, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's very real because the kind of social and psychological attacks that these young men deal with are things where they are told they, they have no worth. They are, they are constantly under pressures and techniques of dehumanization. The, the constant social media backlash or, or, or propaganda that says that they're trash. The, the ignorance that we have to the kinds of abuse that young black boys suffer, not just physical abuse, but early child sexual abuse that's disproportionate to young black boys, right? Early sexual debut statutory rape. These are not conversations we're having, but then we see the outgrowth of the, these kinds of behaviors in the school system or in communities or in families, and we blame that on the masculine of the black boy, right? So the black boy withdraws. He, he seeks mm -hmm. to protect himself. He isolates himself in his own world, which is why when we get all these kinds of statistics back about, well, you know, black boys don't seem to like to talk about their emotions. We read that it's toxic masculinity, understanding all the antecedent violence that these young boys were mm -hmm. going through that mm -hmm. makes it so that that's one of their coping mechanisms. It's not the most positive coping mechanism, but it is a coping mechanism given what, mm -hmm. they're, what they're going through. Mm -hmm. So when we put that in the context mm -hmm. of a relationship, right? It's so important for mutual understanding, right? What I, what I think we have today is this kind of unidirectional conversation about who does emotional labor and who's vulnerable to emotional violence and injury. We don't see black boys being victims of that. So what ends up happening is we're saying that we're willing to talk about racism, gender, et cetera, when we talk to women and girls, when our sisters are dealing with these issues, when our boys are dealing with these issues, how they feel about being neglected or silenced or demonized or are made to be deviants when they haven't done anything or they're dealing with injuries or sexual abuse. Those things aren't conversations. So then you walk into a relationship where you have years and years of, of silence, years and years of frustration, years and years of, of anger, abuse and neglect. And you're trying to have a, have a relationship with another man or, 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 or another woman. And these things blow up in our face. And the, and the reason for that is because we haven't made the, the leap as a community, right, together to understand that the trauma that we experience in our early age affects us in the terms of our life course. So it means mm -hmm. to fix relationships, we have to fundamentally change conditions and we have to change the way that we relate to one another. If we come in mm -hmm. with these expectations that everything's just going to be normed because, hey, we just all came from a perfect background. If something goes wrong, it's something wrong with your masculinity or is your view of yourself, then we're not doing the kind of work that needs to happen to say, well, look, if, if someone hurts you, then maybe we need to talk about mental health resources. If someone neglected you, maybe we need to talk about some kind of mediation with you and your family. If the issue is violence, then maybe we need to start having conversations about how our communities are taking in structural racism and how that impacts the way that we not only see our the young boy sees himself, but we see him as well. Right, and, and also how black men and boys see black women. One of the things that I think that has been, you know, I think the elephant in the room is that black women are saying, you know, and I'm listening to this from my sisters, right, that we hear all of that, 
but but sometimes that violence gets transmuted onto us and into communities where women and girls live, work, and play. And so how do we then create, you know, both this bridge this empathy gap, which you know I feel, at, but at the same time hold the line um, around violence against black women. Do- Dr. Dias. I really like what you just said, but I'm real clear on where um, Dr. Powell just ended, which is like, yeah, I know you're going through it, but you don't get to hit me. <laughs> like you, you don't get to hit me, you don't get to harm me just because you have been harmed your whole life. However, I do want to begin with the antecedents that lead to that place where the exercise of violence towards Black women by Black men occur. And I agree with you, Dr. Curry, wholeheartedly about these antecedents, about what happens. And I think about this a lot. I just completed a book um, called Parent Like It Matters, um, How to Raise Joyful Changemaking Girls. And In that book, I talk a lot about what it means to parent and how parenting shapes the way we think about the world and how we eventually engage in the world. And I, again, I mean, I I know I'm gonna beat this point and I just wanna beat it as hard as I can, (laughs) which is like, what happens when black people use white folks as a frame of reference? Okay, I'm just, you know, just in case anybody want to know what I say over and over again, like I just think like once that is in your head, bad things going to happen. America is hypersexual and violent. All America, every corner of it. You got games, you got church, you got videos, you got movies, you got always violence, even in the good book. Okay. And hypersexual, again, even in the good book. So America is really a violent, hypersexual place. When young kids become violent and hypersexual, as many of them do, white boys, white girls, black and brown girls, that is met with love and understanding. And people move them or try to move them away from such behaviors by saying, you know what, this is not what you're supposed to be doing. This is not good for you. It's not good for those around you. When Black boys behave exactly the same way, people say, yeah, that's inside of them. We take the <laughs> natural and naturalize it and then say, little Black boy, see, you you just did exactly what Tommy did, but you though, little Black boy, you mm-hmm. ain't shit, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. That place happens. It happens inside of homes and it happens in this primary socializing space called school. And it doesn't matter if the teacher is black. It doesn't matter if teachers Latino, Asian, or white. We have all the evidence that says teachers decide who they're going to like. And by and large, all teachers decide they don't like little black boys once they get to nine. Mm-hmm. Right? So even little black teachers who are like, I'm out here, I got a son, right? (laughs) It doesn't matter. At nine, little black boys (laughs) become a problem for all teachers. Mm -hmm. So how do you interrupt? And that hardening that happens when a little black boy sees a little black girl, sees a white girl, sees a black boy, a white boy, get away with things that they cannot get away with, are met with love and affection when they are not met with love and affection, sets in place, at least specifically to our neighborhood, a context for division. And the little black girl is no more astute about what's happening than the white girl or the white boy. But you know who is astute? the little black boy who has been victimized. He Mm -hmm. may not have the language to know 
that this happens, but he begins to see that the rules of engagement for him are strikingly different from the rules of engagement for Black women. How then can we be sisters, cousins, lovers, right, co-workers, when the structural framework set in place already a division that disenfranchises us? And it is not to say that little Black girls are going to have a smooth ride going forward, but what happens is we develop program and practices that says, even like mine, I run the Grassroots Community Foundation. The work that I do deals with girls understanding their emotional state, their educational engagement, their efficacy. The little black boy programs that y'all out here developing deals with them becoming responsible, replicating white <laughs> behaviors, pulling up their pants, fixing their ties, right? None of those things <laughs> are dealing with who they are. And when they do, they still don't address the structural issues. So I, again, will beat the drum and let the next person talk. But the drum is that the white family framework, the white operational systems is what is the fundamental problems. We call it racism. We call it white supremacy. We call it all kinds of things. But in any way, whether the caregiver or the teacher is seeking to have little black boys behave like little white boys without the kind of structural framework and the resource allocation, we gonna get this problem between us. Mr. Viney, I see your hand up. So I, I think there's a, there's a couple of things I wanna uh, definitely address. There's a lot I agree with. Uh, some things I just wanna offer a different uh, slant on because I think it's important as part of this discourse. Um, the, the first thing though I wanna say, and I wanted to say this in the other part, when we talk about um, not just a hardening of, of young black males, but let's talk about the black father. Here's the interesting thing about school systems is that school systems and structures are designed to intentionally segregate out the black father and fathers right at onset. Um, and I'm going to give you an example. And for all of our contact information, this is a, a structural system, a part of our systems. When you have to go in and you look at the demographics or the contact sheet for a student, nine times, 9.9 times out of 10, the mother is at the top. Mm-hmm. And so immediately, the mother is the one getting all of the information. The father sometimes is the second or the father is not even on there. So even at the onset, school systems are structured in a way to make the mother the the main communication person. And so what happens is, is that the father becomes either etched out altogether, but in a good time is, is considered secondary, right? So we have that. That's clearly a white frame. You understand, like, I mean, but that's because white folks have constructed the world where mothers do care work and fathers get to work. I I hear what you're saying, but I'm just simply saying, as a father too, as a Black father, yes, that's a white construct, but I'm simply saying how that is used to enhance more of the feelings of detachment that happen. So you you have that. That's that's one part. I I do want to push back on two things. Being a black male educator, I want to be cautious of the term all when we talk about what happens to black boys. Yes, we know. I was one of them. I, I, I understand that. But there is definitely amongst us the very 2% of us that are black male educators. We are incredibly 
sensitive to that. We are incredibly sensitive to how young black boys are treated. What a lot of people don't even see is how much punishment that black male educators take from school districts, from our principals, if we don't have a principal in advocacy, from our superintendents, or the tension that it draws because we become not just the educator, but many times the mentor and the advocate for the young black boys. So yes, we understand um, how educators, and I'm not gonna push back on that, how educators see young black boys, but I will say, and I will stand up for the 2% of us that it is a very sensitive thing. Too many of us, is are all of us handling it right? No, but you can't find that anywhere. But that is an issue. Mm -hmm. What I do believe is that that issue does not get addressed in secondary nor post-secondary teacher prep problem, um, teacher prep programs. Um, I have my, for example, Dr. Powell knows this. I even though I'm a dean of students, I have my principal certificate, I have my superintendent certification. I will tell you point blank, none of this is covered in our prep programs, and so therefore. If someone is coming in with bias, they can get their superintendent certification without having that bias challenged, which ultimately then filters down into policy or the reinforcement of policy um, towards black boys. Um, last thing I will say, and I want to give a, a shout out to uh, 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 Travian Shorter, where there's been in the nonprofit sector, for example, a lot of pushback in around negative narratives and deficit-based narratives towards Black boys. I get exactly what you're saying in regards to programs that view Black boys through the lens of pull up your pants and everything. But once again, because I, I want to just introduce this into the conversation, especially with myself. I'm the past National Guy Right Director for Cap Alpha Psi. Kappa League is the largest youth leadership program for boys of color in the country. We did not do that. We did not reinforce any of those things. We worked from an asset-based framework. We worked from the framework of the, the highest percentage of young black males going off into college, Questbridge scholars, uh, um, Gates scholars, um, censoring young black boys and taking black men and putting us to the background and saying, no, look at the achievement and leadership of black boys. As a matter of fact, that Georgia race that Biden won, 14 of our Kappa League programs registered 18 to 21 year old black males to vote. And I wanna mm -hmm. introduce these things into the conversation because it's gonna get to, I think Dr. Powell, this last thing when we're gonna get into the Jamel Hill which is my somewhat of frustration. So hold that thought, hold that thought, hold that thought, because I, I already know where you're going and I want to go there. I want us to get there together. So let me bring, let me bring the audience along a little bit here, because I think that what at a high level, what we're talking about here, and I, I love what both, I love what everyone is saying, but let me just try to synthesize here. So Dr. Dias has raised up an important, important point about our, what I call our, 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 abusive relationship with hegemonic white principles and ideals and norms and values. And I think that abusive relationship that we're in has caused some of us to, to grasp for 
uh, the, the, the spoils of white supremacy unconsciously and subconsciously. And some of us, it's caused us to, to see our, ourselves and our people as inherently possessing some of those pathologies. That happens in the black community and brown communities. We internalize all the stuff that we breathe, breathe in. And what you're talking about, um, Elmani, is that there are, there's a new narrative that needs to happen, that this all or nothing you know, framing is what's led us here. This sort of that all black men are problematic and it, it leads us to the Jamel Hill comment, right? Which I, I won't judge or have any opinion about. I'll just put it out there because I want us to, to talk about it together. What she said in her tweet was, I have increasingly found that many black men just want better access to patriarchy. They don't actually want it to be dismantled. And I think that most folks took had problems with that statement because of the very thing you just lifted up. That's sort of all or none framing, like all the black men want this particular thing. No black men are standing up for, 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 for black women and girls. And, and yet that just runs counter to the experience I have every day, counter to the experience I have in my household where I'm loved by an amazing black man, right? Who puts all women and girls first, who actually met because he was volunteering to support an organization, who, which I will not name Grassroots Community Foundation, um, uh, to, to bring girls you know, to, to a place where they can stand in their full light. So we know that those all or nothing uh, single stories that Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie reminds us of are not true. And so how do we rewrite it? How do we tell a new narrative? Like, if, first of all, I want you to deal with the quote. Like, per, what, what was your reaction I, I I know I know Janice doesn't want to go there. <laughs> I'm just dying because a, a part of it is this. I mean, and Dr. Curry, I really need you to speak to this because here's the thing, right? Is that for those of us who spend our lives looking at charts and maps, right? Graphs. Um, we are not suggesting that when we talk about 65% as the trend that the 35% is trash. We are telling you what the dominant trope is, what the dominant finding is. And, you know, I'm just hearing this quote for the first time, but I really wanna, you know, men get breast cancer too, right? Like right. men get breast cancer. But women, way more women get breast cancer. Men get violently abused but way more women get violently abused, right? So we're not suggesting that breast cancer is only happening to women. Violence is only happening to women, right? These things are only women thing. We're saying the dominant issue at bay is this. Not many Black men will live their lives never having experienced some of these insidious, awful things. And still, There'll be many things. They could be great. They could be jerks. They could be all kinds of things, but they haven't. We are, we're talking about the dominant trope around Black men, the dominant relationships that are framing our world. And I think that what happens is that when we take this exceptionalizing 1%, 2%, right? Then sometimes it does exactly the opposite of what we want to do. It counters the fact that we have a wave, a dominant situation that requires our attention. It is important always, right? And I agree with you. It is important always to recognize that there are things that are counter to the dominant. I think it's extremely valuable. And it's particularly valuable if we're trying to envision new possibilities. But I, oh, I, I get frustrated by that because people 
the, these caveats, I think sometimes becomes, in fact, things that just get us off the road. It is clear that an, an enormous tension exists between Black women and Black men. And that enormous tension does not serve either groups well. And that healing that tension will serve both groups better and will be better for the world. And so the question that we at least have is, how can we begin to address these tensions? What do we need to do now in order to heal them? Because they do not serve us well at all. Dr. Kari, I'm tagging you. I feel like you're going to say the thing. Answer the question. <laughs> well, 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 look. I, I mean, my research deals with a lot of different aspects of that, of that, of that question. So let me begin with the first thing. It is absolutely true that Black women endure a disproportionate amount of intimate partner violence. That's just the fact. We've seen that finding for the last thirty years, since the nineteen seventies. The piece that often falls out, though, is that Black men and boys also deal with extremely high levels of intimate partner violence. And one of the things that I have found in my research working with black male victims is that when you're talking about a pathway result like mm. intimate partner violence against women, you usually find an antecedent of previous trauma and abuse. So in people that we've studied in our data sets, when you find that you've had early sexual experiences by black women, you have high levels of those black men holding negative stereotypes about black women and being involved either as a perpetrator or a victim of domestic violence, right? So when we, if, we're, if we're serious about talking about this abuse in our communities, we have got to start having that really hard conversation about some Black women being perpetrators, either at the level of children or, or as adults. Mm -hmm. And I think that what ends up happening with us is that when you look at the CDC data, you don't see these huge disparities. You see practically the same numbers reporting over a 12-month period. So that means that there's something going on in our neighborhoods where we're fighting each other, where we're constantly having cycles of abuse and exposing children in their early years to this kind of abuse and they're reproducing it later on. Because some of that is absolutely economic. Some of it is ecological in the sense that you have previous traumas. But another part of it is just old fashioned racism because they've been having the same findings about black families mm. since the 1930s. Granted, the explanation, as you say, is completely messed up. But when you look at what they're doing, because they didn't have natural data, and you're looking at these kind of cluster models in these big urban cities, you find the same thing, black men and women killing each other in spousal relationships. So, so, when, so when we think about how to solve abuse, that's why I'm always focused on, well, what is it in terms of both of how black boys are engaging the world, how they're coping, but then how, how is the world engaging them? Because if, we're, if we have these kind of antecedents that include violence against Black men and boys, and we never talk to them, and we're talking about these kind of positive, affirmative things, right, we have to think about, well, how are Black boys inventing themselves, right? How are Black boys coping? And that's why I'm saying part of my message is I don't want to fall back into the deficit model. Right, where we look at them as problems. I'm interested in the reflective capacities of young black men and boys. So how are black men making rational decisions to deal with a world that offers them no remedy for their pain? So when you think about antecedents, particularly black boy pain, right, mm -hmm. that we know is connected to black men pain, what are the rates comparatively of black girl pain and black boy pain, these antecedents? So like, you know, a black man who might grow up to be an abuser in a relationship with a woman, did the woman have a similar pathway? Are there trajectories? Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. 
But we the bad the thing nobody studies black. We don't have a large enough sample to actually make a, a, a solid claim on that. To be honest with you, like because we're small parts of data sets. But you're absolutely it's cyclical, and that's why that's why I said until we deal with kind of the ecological production of these kinds of issues in our community, who knows where it starts? If a black man that's rapes why. a black woman and she abuses a black boy child and he abuses right these these are intergenerational traumas that get reproduced both at an ideological level and behavioral Stacey Muhammad's book on spanking is one of a really important part. The reason why I'm particularly obsessed with parenting is because I feel like parenting is exactly the society just right within four walls, right? Like ways in which we digest and replicate inequalities, this hegemonic way in which parenting occur, the way that we normalize racism, sexism, and all the rest of these isms. So I was really curious because I really feel like that line of study helps us in many respects. It's hard. It's it's just emerging that Black boys who have these early sexual debuts with these women who are seven year, eight years older, mm-hmm. that that's abusive, right? Like it's just it's just becoming a part of a national conversation. Like, no, ma'am, that's not okay, right? Mm-hmm. And in previous years, it was considered a conquest. And so mm-hmm. people gave little thought to the fact that that boy might have felt violated and that this was, or the pressure to engage in that sexual relationship harmed them in some way. And even now, some people still find it difficult to be able to embrace that as an abusive thing. Similarly, Black girls are ter- told that they should close their legs. And then when they become sexually expressive, what often happens in one of the studies that I did with Dr. Leash is that that early onset is also met as a violent experience. And so when two sets of people are so harmed, right, how do we begin healing? My, I argue mm. in my book that healing demands both personal confrontation and therapeutic care, right? Is that you have to get to the point where you understand that you're hurt, And sometimes you can deal with that challenge by yourself, but oftentimes you need therapeutic care. And um, addressing and healing ourselves, knowing our ACE number, I call it, it really helps us in order to be able to move forward. So it's really nice, Dr. Kari, to be able to hear that because I think this is the part of the conversation for me that I I would like to see amplified. And I want to take us there um, in these final minutes because y'all, this conversation is so dope. I I don't want it to end but I know y'all have to go to bed and feed children and husbands and wives and partners and dogs. So uh, let me just ask this question. And then Elmani, I I know that you had something to add here. So we'll start with you, but that's what I want to talk about. How do we radically heal uh, these relationships in the village? Because it's clear to me, I mean, folks might have all kinds of perceptions on this, but from where I sit, I can't see us rising any higher in our village without these relationships being amended on some level. So folks who are imagining a world without when, where the men are gone or a world without women, neither one of those worlds makes sense to me. So, and, and that's either if, even if your biological presentation is different from that. I, I, feminine and masculine energy are, are necessary to complete um, a union and to, and, to, and to bridge a society. So how do we then create radical healing, that whole space for boys and men of color and women and girls of color and doesn't treat them as oxymoronic or as metaphysical dilemmas. I'm going to start with you, uh, Mr. Viney. Speaking about boys and men of color, giving them space, 
I, you know, uh, Dr. Powell, I think you and I spoke about this. I'm writing a blog called No Safe Space for Black Men. We appreciate you tuning in to episode two of Holding Space for Boys and Men of Color. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guests explore love and relationships in Black communities. Holding Space for Boys and Men of Color is co-produced by Mr. Ken Cheadle, Dr. Wisdom Powell, Dr. Nino Rodriguez, and Ms. Allison Jocelyn. Music is by Baby Blue. Post-production support provided by Malcolm Powell of Set Films and Radio. Resources and show notes for this and all episodes can be found at anchor.fm slash holding space, the number four, B-M-O-C. Check us out also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at holding space, the number four, B-M-O-C. Tune in to our next episode where we continue part two of our dialogue about Black Macho and the myth of the Black Superwoman. We look forward to you rejoining this courageous conversation.